0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, all right, there's a big deal. Mike Mills from REM is my guest today. And uh, when I started this podcast, you know, my goal was to talk to all four original members of REM. It was a stated goal because the podcast, the, the thing that started me wanting to have this conversation uh, not with, with everybody I talk to is I've always wondered about moments when uh, the earth shifts. And one of the ways I would describe it, when people say, well, what are you after with these conversations, was I, I've wanted, since uh, I'm 19 years old, I wanted to ask the guys in REM what it felt like the first time that they played together. And uh, like if they had any sense that this was a different thing, that these forces aligned in a way that would Changed the world. So you're sitting here, and um, I kind of I just have to start to, by asking you, uh, I, you know, whether you had a sense of it. Well, certainly
1: nothing on quite that scale, um, but I do remember the first time we played together. Uh, you know, Bill and I had been in a band in Macon, and, and we had left there to come to college, and uh, through a, a woman that, that Bill was dating, we met Peter and Michael. And I remember our first rehearsal at the church, and it was freezing cold, and uh, you know we had no idea what was going to happen. And Bill and I had some songs from uh, our previous incarnation in Macon, Georgia, and we showed them to those guys. And... I remember listening to what they had done with our songs and going, "Holy cow! Nobody, nobody else ever did that. That sounds amazing." Because, you know, nobody played guitar like Peter. It was all arpeggiated instead of just thrashing yes. away. Yes. And and Michael had a, a beautiful voice and a great gift for melody, and he took our melodies and did cool things with them. And I said, "Wow, this is you know, this is worth pursuing at least, you know, as a college side endeavor, whatever it was." And
0: uh, and that's what got us started. Well, that I was I was going to ask you that that question, and we'll get to it about. Um about what it was about Michael that enabled you to say, despite the fact that you're a great melodist and a, or an accomplished lyricist, that made you and a great singer say, like, "All right, well, this guy can sing the songs." I, I've always wondered that question because you know, uh, clearly, like, you wrote "South Central Rain," right? You wrote no, no, or, I, um, no. I mean, that was South Central Rain was Peters.
1: Uh, Rockville. But Rockville was mine. Um, sometimes, though, Michael would, would, would take the melody from the bass line. South Central Rain is a really good example of that. Right. His melody is very similar to what I was playing on bass. So a lot of times he would use my bass line as a guide for his,
0: for his melody for the song. But, but the question is, so like Rockville is an example, um, and many other songs that you came in with uh, that, um, who, like, who were you before you played uh, with those guys, when you were with Bill? and in a band, like like the week before R.A.M. formed, what did you imagine this was all going to be for yourself? Were you going to be the lead singer uh, of a band and the main songwriter in a band?
1: I never wanted to be the lead singer. Um, that was never, I was always more interested in harmony. I mean, from the from the very beginning of, of my memory of any music that I liked and enjoyed. I mean, when I sang with the Beatles, I always sang the harmony part. Uh, when I sang with anybody that was on top 40 radio which I carried around in my pocket uh, I always sang the harmony parts Um, I have a great voice for harmony I have I don't my voice is a little thin for for lead over a period of time and I can can do the occasional song and it'll sound great I would think over a course of an entire record mine might not uh, hold up as well whereas Michael uh, somebody like Michael has a there's a quality to the voice that I don't have there's a uh, if you were to look at it on an oscilloscope, mine would take up a very small portion, whereas Michael's would, would, would hit a lot more frequencies and take up a lot more room on the oscilloscope, which is, I think, much more pleasing to the ear.
0: But is that something that you noticed? Because you guys were in a in a church without like a great PA, right? I mean, were you able True. to notice in the beginning? It was like, I've had a creative partner for over 20 years and it's a, I, I could tell you completely like the ways in which we compliment mm-hmm. you know, complement each other, and why why that thing works, uh, and it, a lot of it was evident in in the beginning, and of course it, it shifts. But, but when that started, and you guys were playing together, so I get that Peter was playing these arpeggiated chords, breaking them down in a certain way that was different mm-hmm. than power chords. What was Michael? What was Michael doing to your melodies, or how was because he also back then wasn't singing particularly loudly. Oh, he never
1: did. He still doesn't yeah. uh, sing loudly. But well, I I, I guess I never. I never saw myself as a lead singer. Never wanted to be the lead singer. Never wanted to be the front man. If I wanted to be the front man, I'd have played guitar and been the singer instead of being a bass player and a harmonist. You know, it's a, it's never been the sort of thing I've aimed at. Uh, and and I've always liked my voice, you know, well, to one degree or another. But I never thought that it was the right one for singing the songs. And Michael, it was whatever you're right we probably didn't have a decent pa and i don't remember how i could hear him to be honest with you at that first <laughs> rehearsal but i remember thinking there was a quality there that i really liked and uh, that that's all that i mean i don't remember anything more specific than no that. and that
0: that's that then the thing started to make sense to you so when you were writing songs in the beginning you you always had it in mind i'm gonna i'm gonna write because i'm i'm a i'm a writer and i like doing this but you always had it in mind i'm gonna hand this to, to other people, I'm going to collaborate with other a people.
1: Collabor- collaboration. That was always the goal. I mean, uh, the, it's much more fun to work with people uh, for me. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a particularly driven person. I'm kind of uh, reactionary in a musical sense. In other words, I can take uh, a song that Peter's written, and I can think of really great things to do with it. Um, Arrangement-wise. Arrangement-wise, uh, uh, overdub-wise, um, you know, harmony. And when, when I listen to Michael's uh, melodies, I can think of harmonies and, and counter-melodies and things I want to do to it. So, I mean, while I do write songs, I also really enjoy sort of, you know, counterpoint to what uh, other people I respect are doing.
0: And you always did, even as a kid. Even as a kid starting out, you knew, like, that's what got you off musically. Even, even in church choir.
1: I uh, always wanted to sing... Uh, the harmony the harmony parts, the, the alto parts, the, some of the you know the tenor parts that weren't melodies, those were always the things I liked.
0: Were you always in church choir in Atlanta and LA, like in both places you grew up? Oh no, no, no. Up?
1: I, uh, I was in church choir in, in Macon. Well, when we moved to Macon, my parents, who were both very musical, chose basically, they chose the church we went to based on the best music program. Great. Um, and so uh, the choir director, Susan McDuffie, uh, the musical director, was a supremely talented woman. My dad was the, the lead tenor, my mom sang in the chorus, and uh, and I sang in the Junior Choir and uh, our director was a, a, a tenor and a baritone named John Van Cura who actually auditioned for the Met. He was kind of a big deal back then so uh, we were very fortunate to have all that uh, going on and then that's through that is where I met Bobby Robert McDuffie the violinist with whom I've done the concerto so it's you know making as much of a hole as it was, it's, it's a much better town now, and, and I owe it a lot.
0: And your, par- and your parents in, encouraged them this musical? Oh, yeah. My parents thing. were always
1: extremely encouraging. Uh, we All my bands rehearsed in my parents' basement in Macon, Georgia. Uh, they would come down and listen, or I know they would listen from upstairs. They were always 100% behind me.
0: And did you start, uh, when you started bands uh, in the beginning, were you uh, doing covers, or were you all, always interested in creating with these bands original music? Well, in
1: Macon, the the bands that Bill and I were in, uh, Macon was a funny town. It was very conservative but also pretty musical and you could play, we were in a high school band, so you could play these sock hops and you could play half blues and half top 40 and nobody thought twice about it. So our set consisted of you know, some Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson and uh, you know, just any sort of blues that we felt like doing and then Bad Company and Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo and,
0: you know, the other top 40 hits that people play. Uh, and and uh, and then did you think to yourself you were going to be a professional musician? No, I never thought
1: that. I always knew that music would be in my life. I always knew I would play music. Uh, but you never, I mean, it, it, I mean, some people tell you that I, they always knew that, that was going to be their career. Well, you know what, you're, you're guessing. Right, you're you hoping. <laughs> you're hoping. So many people think that and they never make it and they end up, you know, working a day job, which is fine, but uh, you, it takes a tremendous amount
0: of luck and a lot of breaks to be able to have a career as a musician. Did you think about uh, it as a, dr- as a dream? Was it a conscious like I'm going to work hard to see if I can do this? I never. I don't think I ever thought that far ahead. I, I worked
1: hard. I mean, I, I I felt like it was something I loved and something I could be good at. But uh, you know, I was never thinking, well, in twenty years I'm going to be doing this.
0: Sure. Um, the, the, the reason you're, you're in town is that you're talking about the 25th uh, anniversary release of Automatic for the People which we'll, we'll get to which is um, I, which is I, I think the best R.E.M. album and uh, large periods of my life my favorite uh, R.E.M. record too and we'll, we'll definitely get to it but I want to I got to take this opportunity to kind of go through a little bit of the career of the band and your role in it just because uh, and I said this to Peter Buck when I got to talk to Peter and Corinne recently, um, which is that the the REM, you know, it's a little melodramatic to say REM saved my life, but in a certain way, REM was there for me in the lowest moment of my life in in college. Uh, And your music is like the thing that I would use to buoy myself and to pick myself out of uh, what I was feeling. And as a result of that, REM just still to this day m- just means an in- incredible amount to me you know uh, the music you listen to during those periods of your life they, it just never leaves you if you're someone still connected no, so true especially if you're somebody that then ends up doing creative work for your life and you understand what artists do to do the thing that they do so that's why it's um, you know it's important to me to ask some of these questions that I've literally wanted to ask you since uh, you know I was 19 so uh, you guys f- form the band and it, it starts. Uh, you start immediately, you record and you start immediately getting in the van and, and going uh, around the South and the rest of the, the country. At that time, did you start to have an idea of the, the kind of career that you guys, that you wanted to have? The, um, because you defined um, the music you made and the way that you went about presenting it to the world wasn't really like the way any other band did it.
1: Well, that template didn't exist at that point. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when we started playing it was, you made a record or you, you know, and then maybe you got signed to a record label and then you got on the radio and you became big or nothing happened. Uh, There was not really an underground for music. So we started playing in places, basically we and a few other bands created a circuit primarily in the south and then it expanded into other places. Uh, of anyone that would have us. You know, whether it was a pizza parlor or a biker bar or a gay disco, it just didn't matter. We'd play at whatever place would have new wave night or however they wanted to bill it. We didn't care. They just let us play and, you know, however many people we get the first time, we'll double or triple that the next time we play.
0: And you believe that because you saw that happen in your hometown quickly? We saw
1: it happen in Athens primarily. Atlanta was the same thing. And then when we first started playing out of the Georgia, of Georgia was in Carborough, North Carolina. And... We we, <laughs> we we created such an epic night the first night we played there as much for the after party as as for the show that uh, you know we packed it next time we went there so so you you it was a whole new minefield or or, or not minefield but rather uh, uh, ore field like like you're, we're mining brand new territory so. Uh, right, not but, a
0: minefield where things blow up. No, no but but, but uh, there uh, were precious metals in the ground, eggs. and you were the first people who you were prospecting. Right, and I'm not saying things didn't blow up no. either, but no, uh, yeah. but yes, exactly. And it was it was all just really much
1: virgin territory, and so you would you would just create this circuit uh, with the bands like the DBS and and uh, and other bands from the South and then later the Midwest and everywhere else and, and and create this thing where you didn't need record companies you didn't need the radio stations and then fortunately for us uh, the, the college radio hit at about you know college radio before all this new music was really the province of late-night stoners where you would play 20-minute-long jazz freeform, cuts. Freeform. It was like freeform Totally freeform, yeah. which is great. I mean, I loved it. But but right about the time we started playing was about the time that College Radio started picking up on, oh, wait, there's this whole new subset of bands that are great, that are never going to get signed or never go down commercial radio, and we love them, and they're our age, and we can play them. And so that was sort of our entree into
0: almost every city we went to. And as that was happening, did... did did you have this notion because you'd played in other bands, you'd seen a bunch of bands? I, I often think about and talk about that the line between being a successful artist and being delusional is very thin. You know what I mean? Because you're delusional right up until the moment it works, and, or the moment it doesn't. Or no, and, and, then I think yeah. it's confirmed. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, did you have the sense like, oh, this is getting good? Like this, we're good. Uh, I do remember there was one one day, and I don't remember
1: what Peter and I were walking down Broad Street in Athens, Georgia. And I don't remember what made us say this, but we looked at each other, and he went, "You know, I think we can do this." Right. And I said, "Yeah, I think you're right." I mean, I I don't know if we maybe we just heard our first single on WOG, or I don't know what it was, but something made us look at each other and go, "You know, this this could actually happen." And you know, for us happening meant I think we can pay our rent and eat pizza and drink beer. That's from what this I was saying. Yeah,
0: that's what I was going to ask you. In the beginning, what was your definition of success? That, was it was telling a, my parents, like my parents knowing I'm. Um, I'm supporting myself with music, being able to to not have to work a day job. Well, we were we were all still in college at that
1: point, so uh, but uh, you know we didn't have any money. Uh, Peter worked at a record store, so he had a little money, but I didn't do much of anything, and uh, I sold a lot of plasma. Actually,
0: um, you did. You were blood. You, oh, you gave yeah. blood for I mean, money. Well,
1: yes, just seven dollars seven dollars a pop for plasma, and I could I could go buy a three dollar bottle of wine and have four dollars left over for probably beer. Nice. Um, <laughs> or whatever you want to vary your what diet a, that was it. i mean exactly. you didn't want to bury the diet exactly. so. you can't eat the yeah. can't drink the same thing no. every day um but yes that was you know so, and we had you know we had girls that we knew that would that worked in pizza joints that would give us slices so uh but then really at the point where we could pay our rent and and actually buy you know 5 dollars worth of food a day that
0: was that was making it yeah as the as the, as the band then took off um you know you guys rolling stone uh Pick the single as, like, the best single of the year, the Village Voice, um, right? You guys won the jazz and the Paz and Jop poll or whatever. Um, did you consciously, like, keep adjusting your definition of success? Like, I often think of that line in Bandwagon, you know, where you say, uh, um, I, you know, come on aboard, I promise you, we won't hurt, we the, won't horse. hurt the horse. <laughs> and, by the way, it sucks that the B-sides are available for everybody. I hate... Uh-huh. <laughs> It was much better when they were just yours, wasn't it? Yeah, I, man. I, I I, the B-side thing, when the first time, when you guys put out Eponymous, I was angry. And then when you yeah. put out the Bs, all the B-sides, yeah. and it was annoying because we spent, you know, I had to scrounge to find those records. Right. And they meant, you know, you'd hear Bandwagon, you'd be like, this is a clue.
1: Well, that's absolutely right. And that's why we did it. Because Peter and I were both, uh, you know, 45 maniacs, Peter more than I, but... Uh, But absolutely, that was why we did that, was for the the obsessives out there to to discover this and and you'd be the only ones that knew. And that was awesome. Uh, If you look at something like Superman, Superman was a B-side of a single by The Click. The A-side was Sugar on Sunday, a Tommy James song. So B-sides were definitely where it was at.
0: And uh, we loved it. You know, Maggie Mae was a B-side It's a Reason to Believe. Reason to Believe by Tim Harden was the A-side of that Rod Stewart record. Well, you know, that's, that's, again,
1: they're they're undiscovered gems. And people say, oh, the B-side can't be that good. Well, so many times the B-side was as good or better than the A-side. But
0: yeah, you know, R.E.M. became this gigantic monolithic thing. But in the beginning, so you guys were thinking about the obsessive fans. And I think that also set you apart. Because you would put these odd B-sides, songs like Crazy by Pylon or... Uh, bandwagon or, t- you know, many other I could rattle them all. The Velvet Underground, you know, like um, guys like me found the Velvet Underground because of Pale Blue Eyes and Femme Fatale covers that you guys
1: did. Well, we thought about fans because we were fans, you know. I mean, Peter was already a record obsessive long before I met him. And Peter turned me on to things I'd never heard. I'd never heard, I'm Macon, Georgia, I never heard the Velvet Underground in Macon, Georgia until I met Peter. I never listened to Big Star until I met Peter. Right, And uh, those things just Totally warped to my world it was wonderful so um, yes, all we always made nods to the obsessives you know fi- putting, putting uh, instead of an A and B side on the albums it would be you know fireside waterside or you know timeside memory side or whatever it was it was because we used to pore over records you know LPS and look for all these little details and clues as to yeah. the, the, what was going on in the heads of the musicians that were making them. Um, one of my favorite things to look at is things in the in the inner grooves of LPs. You know, you can write things on the masters and leave little notes for your fans in there. Um, there's a James Gang record that in the runout groove, uh, it's it, it it keeps going and it says, "Play me again, play me again, play yeah, me again." Man, I, I love, mean, that sort I of mean, thing. Yeah, is,
0: we've I've always loved all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, we we always leave little things in our shows and movies for people to pick up on. Excellent. But even fables of the reconstruction, you know, reconstruction of the fable. You could go on and on. Well,
1: it's funny you say that because I was uh, I'm on Twitter and I was talking to uh, this guy asked a question about uh, people were talking about how uh, we never put our faces on the record, on the, on the cover of the record. Why is that? I said, well, because we wanted people to focus on the music and the band rather than individual members. And somebody said, well, what about, what about Up? I said, I mean, uh, what about Around the Sun? I said, well, those, that's Michael. That's just three pictures of Michael. And then they said, well, what about Fables? You're on the cover of that? I said, no, now you know which is the back of the record. Right. Because that's the one with our pictures. Yeah,
0: on. Fables of the Reconstruction, Reconstruction of the Fables. And uh, all those clues. But I, I've been thinking about this as I knew we were going to talk and, and thinking about how that stuff never felt like you were trying to recruit us. But on the other hand, you were making us more than just fans. You were making us like part of this uh, extended family in a way, or gave us the sense that we had a stake in the whole endeavor somehow. Yeah. And yeah. was that something that you guys would talk about? Oh, yeah. I mean, we'd lay it out there for people. I mean,.
1: Uh, here's the club. You want to join? You know, We'd love to have you if, you if you can just figure out the code, whatever it is. And all the code was was just looking at, at, at these little minor details and saying, oh, I kind of I like that they put that out there for us.
0: If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward, but you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates so you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And the easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com moment. That's ziprecruiter.com slash moment. One more time, to try it for free, go to ziprecruiter.com slash moment. Yeah, so were you guys conscious of the fact that you were, you were building it slowly, but you were building towards something at a certain point? Like, was there a moment you realized, okay, this is probably gonna be my identity for most of my life, like, REM member, and I'm gonna try, and, and did that happen when you were still at IRS? I would think it would have by the time it, 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 it was growing in that way. You know, it was,
1: it was such an organic process that I, I didn't really have time to reflect on that. It, 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 you were too busy writing the next song and, and getting ready for the next tour and getting ready for the next record. It, there wasn't a lot of, uh, as, as, as I look at it now, there wasn't a lot of time for reflection on, well, well what am I going to become? What, is this going to take over my existence? It, it was just what we did. It was just who we were. You uh, were just living it, just living living it in the moment, living it at the time, and and doing whatever felt like needed to be done at the moment at and the moment. so
0: the things that seemed to us like they were um in some way not, if not part of a plan but like like uh you know the difference in the sound from fables to life's rich pageant when suddenly not not only was my, not only was Michael way more clear and I know Don Gaiman spent a lot of time trying to uh, make that happen but you know the drums sounded different mm-hmm. um peter stopped playing those arpeggiated chords mostly or just only did a few times He played many more power chords true um the songs were much more straight four four like they were like rock and roll songs was that just because you felt like doing that because you were on like what what would happen that would make the rules Sure. right
1: well you don't want to you don't want to make a record purely in reaction to the previous record but the reaction to the previous record can at least start you off in a direction um, yeah. and certainly you know we, we we had a tough time making fables and and that's been you know documented but you know I still love Joe Boyd he's still a friend of mine um, That's and, the producer of that yeah the producer of the record they made in
0: England and it was miserable uh,
1: It was well you know it was England in 1984 five and there was literally nothing to eat and it was cold and wet and snowy and just it was it was pretty miserable uh, and the tv there was no tv to watch i mean there were four channels darts you could watch darts uh, snooker and darts and and yes no for a sports guy like you that would be Tough. Uh, just, I no mean, baseball. anything. I mean, there, there was just, and the the, the the, programs, the actual comedies or dramas, whatever, they were incomprehensible. I mean, you know, if they'd had Derek and Clive on there, now I'd have been a happy You'd have guy. Been but, but that didn't happen.
0: So you were, so you're saying you're reacting. So
1: you react to that. Uh, you know, you say, okay, well, Fables was great, but we've done that. Now it's time to try something different. Uh, Don Gaiman makes great sounding records. Uh he really does good things with an acoustic guitar. Let's let's just change our sound and, and, and try something to keep us interested, to keep the fans interested, uh, just to not repeat ourselves. And were
0: you conscious of the fact when that it sounded more like radio? Were you comfortable with this idea that you were a, sort of bound to start exposing yourselves to bigger... You know, I don't think it was so much sounding like radio. We were looking for a
1: clarity at that point. After Fables, which which you know a lot of people love that record as a, one of our their favorites. It's a murky, record. mysterious sounding record, and I love that aspect of it, it. But you can't you can't try to do that. That happened purely by. Uh, the fact that we were in uh, London in the wintertime working with a folk producer and it all came, you know, he, he was trying his hand at rock and roll. So it ended up coming out like it did, but you can't try to do that. So we said, all right, well, it's time to, it's time to strap on the electric guitar again and go make some noise and see what Don Gaiman can do with this. Uh, radio was much more in Don Gaiman's mind than it was in ours. Don Gaiman likes to have hits. That's what he told us. Yeah. He says, I want to make hits. We're like, well, good luck with that, but uh, let's make a good sounding record. And in fact, that's why he didn't do the next record. He said, "He said, you know, we had such great success. We were like, well, Don, when do you want to start the next record?" He said, "I don't want to do it. Are you nuts?" He said, "No. He said, you guys are great, but I want to have hit singles, and you guys don't care about that. And I want to work with somebody that wants to have hit singles.'"
0: Yes. So Don wanted to make hit, hit, hit singles. He did. But you guys weren't.
1: Well, no, we didn't care. About that. We, we would have been happy to work with Don again, and if he wanted to produce in the direction of hit singles, it, it, the thing about it is if it felt organic and it felt natural and it felt right we'd be happy to do that i mean go all the way back to to uh murmur uh when we were mixing murmur uh the record company got the mixes uh Got back at Don, uh, Dixon. Don Dixon and Mitch Easter, and says we need to make this more radio friendly. You have to, you have to change. You have to make this sound more '80s. You have to change the snare, do a few things. So they did. They sent us the mixes. Peter and I went ballistic and said, "There's no way you're going to do this." So we went back up and made them remix uh, "Murmur" with less. 80s radio sound, and there's still actually a little more of it than I want on the record.
0: You would change "Murmur," a per, which is a perfect creation. Well,
1: there's a little bit. If you did listen to the difference between the single version of "Radio Free yeah, of or, course, you know, and then yes. that one. I mean, the hip tone version. Yes, And yes. The, there's there's some there's some radio friendly noise on there, but we still got most of it stripped off. Don Dixon was like, "I'm just doing what I'm told." Well, so we're now telling you to undo what you were told and make it sound like it's supposed to.
0: Both got Don Dixon. I don't know Mitch Easter, but Don Dixon is one of the world's great guys. He is, and so is I, Mitch. I love that guy. And uh, Don Gaiman's a great guy, too, actually. And I've spent I know. I love Don. Real I mean, time we, with we, both of those people, and they're both quality. I, I quality. spent a lot of
1: time sitting at the desk with all of them and just really enjoyed every second of it. I mean, I would love to have worked with Don again. And I'm really glad that, that what happened uh, to him later is what happened. You know, To Gaiman
0: with Hootie? With Hootie. You know,
1: Hootie, yeah. Hootie, hi, Hootie hired him because Hootie was a big R. Uh, Hootie, you know, the Bluff, Hootie and the Blowfish were big R.M. fans, and they said, well, we want the guy who produced that record. So they brought Don in and... and the rest yeah, no, his is, career
0: history. has been... Don, if you don't know, Don Gaiman made these John Cougar, Mellencamp records. Well, he made John Cougar records, then John Cougar, Mellencamp <laughs> records, uh, R.E.M., uh, the Hootie, and then he made the uh, the Tracy Chapman album that had uh, Gimme One Reason on it. And um, He's a great producer, no doubt yeah, about Yeah, an incredible him. mixer and, and producer. But, um, well, you just said a couple things about the organic and natural and if it really sounded like R.E.M. And I, this is a question I... I I wrote down right on exactly on this subject which was do you have any idea why the band means so much to us like I've thought about it a lot and to me it has to do with integrity heart purpose this is what I wrote down and some kind of an unshakable faith that the four of you cared about this thing in the way that we cared about it but but I wonder if you if you've thought about why like there's a lot of bands that are huge bands a lot of bands have fans but if you've thought about why your band means what it does to to those, you know, to this big group of people who line up for the to to get the twenty new, you know, twenty songs from twenty five years ago. Well, it, a lot of things had to line up. I mean, we came along at a
1: time when music uh, was undergoing radical shift into what was called new wave, into punk rock. Uh, What was on commercial radio was being ignored, it was dying out in a sense of anything fresh and new, kids were rejecting it, Uh, college radio had a lot to do with it, and all of those things led to us going out there and being able to do it the way we wanted. We were willing to sacrifice commercial success, which was never our goal anyway. in order to do things on our own terms
0: and we did and we became successful at it and i think pe- people like to see that 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 can actually happen and, and you think we noticed it somehow we felt like this is the real article because it what it was yeah because it was
1: exactly i mean it connected with people who who felt what we
0: felt which was that you know it's it's our world let's change it did it ever like freak you out as it all started to happen to look out and see how important it was to the fans that it was you know that it wasn't just a rock concert, it wasn't just music, it was this, um, there was this thing that happened with Michael and the audience, but with all of you and, and, and the audience.
1: Well, it, it, no, it never freaked us out because we, we were they, you know, we were, it was us and them. It wasn't us and them, it was us. And, you know, I, their joy at a concert was our joy. And and that was the whole point of it was that there was no separation. One of the one of the great photographs of the very early REM days, me and Michael and Peter are all down on the dance floor, and the audience is all up on the stage dancing. Right. <laughs> and it's that, you know that was we were that was actually
0: that. your ethos. Like, that was the real ethos of the thing. Exactly. And you kept it the whole the whole time. As
1: much we kept as much control of that uh, as we possibly could.
0: As you could. But then, I, as I was saying, to uh, um, Burtis who's your manager, or the manager of REM, or I guess runs REM's business now that there's no band? He's our manager. He calls himself our advisor, but he's our manager, yeah. Um, I was telling him, I was at, so I became a huge, I saw you guys open for the police at Shea like in 81, but I didn't really know the band didn't, I didn't, um, Well, you and everybody else in the did I didn't, had no audience. idea that, uh, yeah. what the band was then, so I can't count it as like the first time, I, I did see the band, but it didn't matter to me. Right, then. right. I was in high school and I didn't, you know, 10th grade or something. But, um the first real show I saw when I knew all the words, and it mattered to me, was um, 86, November of 86, at the Wang Center in Boston. And um, you had just put out Life Search pageant, and I had become a fan a year and a half before, but this was the first time you came through where I was, and I could see the band. I had looked, I remember getting the tickets, and just looking forward to it for months and months and months. Um, But I remember sitting in the audience, and uh, you guys played an unreleased song. You played the one I love, and which was going to be on your next album? And because I grew up in the record business, you know, my dad was in the record business and I grew up recording studios and all this shit, I just recognized instantly that you guys had written a Smash commercial hit. I wow. was sitting there when he said fire the first time and the lights went red, and you're singing the uh, harmony. I, I chills went through me. I remember it like it's right now. I can picture every part of it. And I remember thinking, holy shit, everything's going to change. This is going to a wow. whole different level. And um, did you have that awareness, like, before that happened? And did it freak you out at all as it started to crescendo in that way? We were
1: very, very lucky in that all of our growth up until Losing My Religion was very gradual. Um, You know, every record sold more than the one before it, but it wasn't wasn't until then that it took that exponential step. So for us, it felt, you know— Not only did it feel wonderful and kind of natural, but we were always expecting the drop-off. You know, we thought, that's why we called the second record Reckoning, because we figured, well, this is the one where they're going to hate us. That's funny. So, you know, and then we thought, well, okay, they like the first two, they'll hate the third one because it sounds like, you know, a dirge. Well, it is.
0: No, no, and it doesn't sound like a dirge. No, it doesn't. It (laughs) is a dirge. (laughs) Please. I mean, you start with Feeling Gravity's Full. I mean, one of the oddest ways to start an album of all time.
1: Up until Airport Man, which was yeah. even odder. but yeah, it, we just felt, uh, you know, we just ride the wave. It just everything we did felt like the natural thing to do, and it felt honest and real to us. But when you would
0: make a song like that, when you would write uh, a song like, you know, on a much lower scale, I remember when Dave and I wrote the pilot for Billions, uh, with uh, um, Andrew helped us write it too. But when we wrote the pilot, I do remember, you know, it was very hard to write, and I remember there was this. During Christmas, I remember reorganizing a bunch of it, and then kind of looking at this thing and reading it and going, oh, this is gonna be a hit television show. It wasn't No one had bought it yet. It was just ours. We hadn't shown it to anybody, but I knew, because I'd had experience, I'd like, right. would been writing and doing this for a long time, and right. I was like, oh, this is gonna work, which is an odd thing. So like when, when, when something like the one I love, you know, Fall On Me, I think Fall On Me was super... But like, how, do you remember how that song got written? And when you guys played it, and as you start playing it for audiences, did you, did you know, like, oh, this is gonna... The one I love? Yeah.
1: Um, well, yeah, because, I mean, how, how can you not sing along with the chorus? It's one word, and everybody knows it, and it's really fun and easy to sing. And the whole
0: I- song's kind of a chorus, in a way. The yeah. verses are kind it's, of like chorus, like that simple you know, melody. It's like
1: it's like Patterson Hood was talking about Tom Petty and uh, there's a great online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. Oh, I love that essay genius. that he wrote. That's an amazing and he wrote essay. This brilliant essay, but he said that Petty's one of Petty's geniuses was was just get to the chorus, don't bore us, bring the yeah. chorus, you know. And and uh, and so the one I love is kind of like that. It's it's just a fairly simple verse which repeats three times and is only different really once one of those times, and then it gets to the chorus, which is one word. I mean, you can't get any simpler than that.
0: And your writing process, which we'll get to, did your writing process change, the band's writing process change as you went along? In other words, was The One I Love written in in the same way that Try Not to Breathe was written?
1: I, I think the first few records were more collaborative in the composing sense because we were all either living in the same house or hanging out in the same houses all the time. We were always together.
0: So you would have fragments then? Song fragments you would play for each other? and then- Well, no,
1: even more than that, we would just sit there and pick up guitars and start playing and and see what comes out. Or the three of yeah.
0: you, Bill, and Peter, and Peter together? Yeah.
1: And sometimes, sometimes we'd say, okay, here's an idea. Yeah, I mean, here's an idea I wrote it for in the morning last night. How do you, what do you think of this? So there was, yes, there was a lot of that, uh, but a lot of it was literally made up in the same room at the same time. That became a little less once we you know lived in separate houses and but still the a lot of songs were written in the rehearsal room without uh a pre-existing
0: idea the whole time the, you, yeah, you the, guys the would time. get in a room someone would start playing a riff or so, bill would yeah. play a beat or something would happen yeah. and suddenly yeah. a song would oh all the way up to me
1: and honey uh i was just goofing around on that bass no riff and michael happened to be sometimes michael was with us in the writing process sometimes he wasn't Mostly, he was even early. Even early. Well, that wasn't exactly early, but no, mostly. No, no. Out of
0: time wasn't early. I'm saying, but oh. even early no, when you early were writing, he, or no, early he on, wasn't he wasn't there the... much early. It okay, was mostly yeah, yeah.
1: us doing it and then handing it to him later. Uh, but in this case, he was there for me and Honey, and I was just playing that little riff, and he said, "Keep playing it." And I was like, "That's oh, really hard. It's in D flat." He said, "Well, just keep playing it." So, uh, so I finished it. I mean, I just kept playing it, and he literally wrote the song while he was sitting there. And I said, "Well, it needs another chord," so I added one more chord, and that was it. and The song was done.
0: He played that. When he opened for Patti Smith, oh, did he? Uh, like two, okay. two years ago or three years ago? Yeah, that's right. I went, with, right. I went right. with Mario and yeah, yeah. um, Heilman, and uh, yeah, he that he yeah. he played. They did like a Sinatra song, but that was like yeah. one of the two. I bet they changed the key because I wrote it in D flat.
1: And sometimes, uh, you know, I can' there's no way I could play hold my fingers over those high strings on the bass for three and a half minutes. You, it's just too hard to do. So I would capo it later in the show, but you, I could have changed it to D and done it really easily, but that changes things. A, a half a step can really alter the nature and the character of a song, so we left it in deep flat. Um,
0: speaking of the way you wrote that song, I, I did read that quote you gave uh, about how, when you were young, you thought it was important to have soul, like if you wrote the music, you wanted credit for it, and then Peter convinced you that the band should share. Yeah. Do you, do you think he was right? Oh, there's no
1: question. I, I, I said earlier that it was maybe the most important decision we ever made. Uh, because nothing will break a band up faster than money except for, well, yes. money. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, I mean, I, and I didn't want the money. I wasn't concerned about the money. I was happy to share the money, but I did want people to know which songs I wrote. But Peter said, you know what, I, I understand that. We all feel that way. But at the same time, uh, I I know from my
0: knowledge of music and bands that nothing will break a band up faster than, than somebody else getting all the money. Yeah, that's so smart. He, he's, uh, he said when I, I spoke to him that uh, – he thinks playing guitar is like the thing he does fifth best, and that like basically leading a band and making these kind of decisions, songwriting second or third, but this kind of thing. Yeah. And he was like, "That's what I'm best at." Well, actually. his
1: his vision was always true, and and I I, I appreciate
0: that. And one. did you know it early? Like I'm gonna follow, like this. Okay, I'm I'm gonna take direction. No, from he, this well person. it
1: made sense. I mean, if he had said something that I considered was complete bullshit, I wouldn't have gone along with it. But I said, "All right, I see your point on that." Uh, you know, for me, from the beginning, the band was more important than any one person's feelings, and I think you know we all felt that way, and that's why we managed to get through all whatever tough times we had. It was like, you know what? I don't, I don't care if this bothers you, or I do, but really, let's keep your eyes on the wheel here, and remember that the band, what we do in this band, is more important than anything any of us will ever do as individuals. So let's just try to remember that.
0: So you did have that. That's an incredible bit of sort of like um, self-awareness to have. Yeah, and we had it. We had it from.
1: I remember having a band meeting in '84 where something similar to that was discussed. So yes, it was all part of
0: our. It was in our brains pretty early on. '84. That's uh, like around Fables. Uh, it was on the. I think it was on the Reckoning tour. So in between Reckoning and Fables, mm-hmm. where you were like the band is the thing. Well, this we going to matter more than we anything had an else. issue
1: where where we had to uh, where everyone had to step up and say is Are you committed to this or are you not? And if you are, then here's what has to happen. And and it did
0: oh no that's when the that's when the dexedrine had to go away but uh, <laughs> that's too bad yeah,
1: we were lucky with that aspect we never had that uh, particular
0: problem i i don't know i don't think that's true whatever from what everyone says the Dexadrin was what like made the first tour like those what, long towards that talked is about Is that, that like no-dos? Uh, no dose? No speed. I mean, oh, you don't was... even know what that is. <laughs> I mean, that's the legend of the band. <laughs> I, I literally I know all these other weird facts, and that one I'm wrong about. Maybe you, I am. No, I, let's put it this way I never took Dexatrin. I, I, believe I, you. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't have my fun, but uh, I don't I, that All right, I'm not, glad uh, to have that. You know, the legend is you guys were taking speed as you were driving around the car. And that is just in well, every... I
1: didn't say that we weren't. I just <laughs> said that I don't know what dexedrine. is. Okay,
0: fine. It's speed.
1: <laughs> um, so uh, in... I've never seen a White Cross or a Black Beauty. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, there you go.
0: Um, in, in talking about that's it, it's good. It's a non-denial denial. In the age of... <laughs> Do you know, the first time I met you, I was just about saying the age of Trump, but the first time that I met you, although you and I hung out with a, our mutual friend, but the fir- you came to the premiere of my first movie, which is Rounders. You, Peter, and Bill. Oh my God. Came to the premiere party for Rounders downtown. And Donald Trump showed up that night, too. Holy cow. Who I I had never met. And I didn't care about talking to him, but I couldn't believe that my, out of nowhere, the premiere, the first thing I ever did, my favorite band walked in. And I guess you guys were like in the neighborhood. I I don't know what got you there, but the three you walked in, and because it was our movie, I felt completely fine. You'd crashed my party to come up to you. And, I, and you, you guys invited me to sit at the table, but the monster Trump was there also. So I think maybe you had to come cosmically to balance the exactly, evil exactly. so that there was good and evil there. and We, we, uh, we were sent. That's what I'm... I think so. <laughs> I, I think you might have been... So in in building, talking about Automatic, um, I've often wondered about the decision you guys made to leave IRS after the fifth album. And did... You guys make a decision like to try and become superstars. Did you feel like the music wasn't getting a chance to get to the full audience? Because you were, as you say, it kept growing. You kept getting bigger. You were already playing really big places. Um, in America, we were in okay, Europe. So- it was it was really a lot about
1: Europe. We would we would Europe was a hard slog, uh, especially when you've already gotten somewhat successful in America, and you would go to Europe and we would play these crappy little halls with the only people there were American servicemen. Now I'm always more than happy and thrilled to play for American servicemen anywhere at any time. Heroes. But that was all it was. We weren't getting, we were not building the audience anywhere past mm-hmm. that. We The records were not available in the stores. Uh, it was just getting really frustrating to go work that hard and have uh, nothing, nothing come of it. And... Uh, so when we got to the end of the IRS contract, uh, again, that was, that was one of the hardest decisions we've ever had to make, was, was to leave IRS, because we loved Jay Boberg, and, and everyone there had worked so hard for us, and we'd been so mutually beneficial for each other. Uh, it really stunk. I didn't, we didn't want to do it, but we just felt like IRS had given us all there was to give, and there just wasn't anymore. And no matter what they offered or promised, there was no way they were going to ever be able to do anything about Europe. And uh, that was really
0: the real crux of the matter. And I, I remember once the deal was announced, like the whole music world focusing on the amount of your contract and all that stuff. You know, I still remember the number all these years later, and like it, it felt like everyone was getting ready to kill Green and wanted to sort of be able to say like uh, these guys lost it now that they they did this thing. How did you process that? Because you were these. Uh, heroes of like not only the left, but of sort of like the ground up sort of holistic movement. And then you signed with this big corporate entity. Did it bother you or did, were you able to tune it out?
1: We weren't too worried about it because the reason we signed with Warner Brothers over any of the other major labels that were courting us was Lenny Warnker and Mo Austin were music men. They weren't bean counters. They weren't suits. They were actual music men who cared about the music. They promised us full and complete creative control, and we believed them. And in fact, that was correct. Did Karen
0: Berg was she involved too? She
1: was, and uh, I didn't know her going in, but I'm sure glad I got to meet her throughout the throughout the life of the contract. And so that was that was basically it, because we knew that we could do what we wanted to with integrity. We could do it our way, and uh, and true to their word,
0: they they left us alone. Had you written the songs, any of those songs, ahead of time? So did you know? All right, well we're armed with were armed with music? I
1: honestly don't remember. Um, that's I, that's but it hard. wouldn't have mattered. I mean, because we knew we could write songs, and we knew that when we went in and, and wrote some more, they would be really, well, actually, like you said, we were doing, uh, yeah, well, here's the thing. We always, on almost every tour, we played songs that we hadn't recorded yet. Yeah. So I'm sure that uh, that on the on the document tour, we were you playing played something off of Green. From, from yeah. Green.
0: Yeah, I saw that tour. I don't remember what the song from. It wasn't like uh, the one I love kind of moment where I no. recognized like, oh, there's, you know, but I'm I don't sure think you played Orange, Sh- like I don't think I heard Orange Crush before. No, I think that came later. The, the album. Um, but as you made this choice and to expand your audience worldwide, I guess I wonder what the audience, we've talked a lot about what, what you guys have meant to the audience, but I'm, I am curious how you relate to the, the audience. Like that you have these people who still care so much about these songs and these anniversary releases. Um, did the audience mean something? Did it mean something to you to have these people along for the um, ride with you?
1: Absolutely, I mean, the, the quality of the show was based half on audience response and half on what, how we thought we played. Uh, there were several shows where we all thought, or eat, any one of us might have thought, we played like crap. But the audience was so good that that it was fine. It was a, it was fine. Sure. And then there were you know some shows where we knew we played really well, and the audience was just dead as a bunch of doornails. So uh, those were the places we didn't go back to quite as often as
0: others. Yeah, that makes total sense. So um, just turning to Automatic, uh, in in certain ways, to me, Automatic is a return to the feeling of the first few albums, uh, even though musically it's. It's not and lyrically it's so direct um, but the tempo's themes, the sort of general sadness underneath things that existed on many of the songs on the first three albums. and then there was this move to sort of um, become a rock band largely there were always there were always um, songs that weren't rock songs on the records, but you'd become kind of a rock band. It's not a reaction to out of time, right because out of Time is also has mid-tempo songs on it. It doesn't feel as much like a reaction the way Leicester Pageant was to um reckoning. I mean to uh Fables. Right. But were you conscious of doing a different thing?
1: Well, not necessarily. We thought it was going to be a rock record when we started writing for it. Uh, you know, several of those demos have more of a pop or a rock and roll feel, but uh as we began and continued writing it, the the slower, the acoustic ones. They, you know, Peter was still, you know, he was enjoying playing the bassukey and, and things like that. And uh, and then the songs that, that Michael uh, gravitated toward were were these. You know, they were the they were the slower, more reflective uh, sounding pieces. And ultimately, you know, if you give a singer twenty songs and ten of them are slow and ten of them are fast and he picks eight of them to slow ones, then you're going to have a slow record. Uh, because as Peter said, if Michael doesn't finish them, we have a bunch of instrumentals sitting around. So really it's, it's whatever we wrote
0: that inspired Michael made us happy. Did, by that point, did, did, did you guys not write any of the lyrics? I, I, the only time I ever wrote
1: lyrics was when uh, Michael got stuck. Um, because why bother? I mean, it was we had one of the best lyricists I've ever known in rock and roll, and and there was really no reason for us to to try to step on his territory. And he's the one that had to sing them, so why should I tell him what he's got
0: to sing? So, uh, so you were always comfortable with that. You were always. comfortable with even when you knew you had a beautiful piece of music. If if for whatever reason it didn't like, would you try to go like, come on, dude?
1: Well, there were a couple. There, I tell you the truth, there were two songs that he wrote uh, that he finished that I was. I thought that World Leader Pretend could have been the best pop song in history. And then he wrote this sort of, you know, inward-looking kind of moaning thing that I was like, are you kidding me? Meanwhile, it's
0: become like one of the most sort of talked about played songs in the whole catalog. And and
1: I love it. I love playing it. I mean, after, once I got used to what he does, you just have
0: to let that stuff go. So he wrote, you mean, because the melody that he wrote and the... It was uh, mostly
1: the melody and the fact that it was all the way down yeah. here, and I just I was like, well, damn it to hell! You could have you could have pushed a little harder on that one, but the fact is that was just my my thing, not his. So, uh, you know, would I, you I, say it? I
0: can't remember if I said anything in about general, that. but no, not this. Big, in general, would you right? Because you guys made these you know uh, perfect albums over and over again, and I. Was it always smooth sailing in no, that stuff, there or were, would you ta- argue it out? There were a
1: couple of songs where we uh, we said, you know what, you got to you got to redo this. Oh, there were. Yeah, I and wish, he would I do wish. it. I believe he would. Yes, I mean, uh, he. It, it's again, it's 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 a sort of thing that that. You're talking to one of the best, in my view, one of the best there ever was right. in rock and roll, right. so there's, very, very there's no seldom, but every Let once them in them a while them. there was a song where, where, we, where it was like, you know what, that's just, we need, the first of all, we need this song, it's, it's that good, and the record needs this song, and I know you can do better on this one, but that is ultra rare. And uh, I probably shouldn't even say it, but but I'm sure Michael understands. But it's it was it was so super rare because we never had to. Everything you know, there were just a couple of them that he wrote that, like I said, I, I, I they weren't what I was hearing in my head. Sure. But within a month of listening to it, I was like, you know it what, it made that, sense. That's to you. Absolutely great, and I'm really happy I didn't say anything.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking though on this album with like Mike's pop song and Devil Rides Backwards, which you guys released those two first, and I've listened to all of them now, uh, all all those songs. You know, Mike's pop song. I mean that. Which you're singing, you sang that demo, right? And you wrote the words. Yes. That's your song. Yes. I wrote the the whole thing, in fact. Yeah, Yeah, no, I'm saying it's clearly in my... I mean, it clearly feels like a song that's yours. (laughs) Did it bug you to not have that be on the... Now, if he would have wanted to to sing that song... No, no, he would not have wanted to sing that. That's... you knew that was gonna be your thing.
1: Yeah, that was just my thing. I, you know, to be honest with you, I'd forgotten about it until we looked at the demos again. I'd forgotten we'd even done it. Um, and, and it's pretty clear if you listen to the re- I mean, that had no place on, on it automatic. It wouldn't have fit on the album. It would outlet. not have fit on the record. I'd, uh, I'm not even sure why I did it. I guess I just was sitting around one day and wrote it, but. Um, Could have been on New Adventures though. It could have been. It could have been. But we we tried not to recycle it as often as possible. I'm not saying we never did, but it's it's better if you can start fresh every time.
0: Ana, uh, when you were writing these songs for Automatic, when did you become aware that you were doing something really special, right? You guys made all these really good albums, but I think, you know, the, the certainly the moment that that record was released, I mean, I remember where I was. I, rem- I remember what it was like to hear it for the first time. I remember Amy, my wife, and I listening to it. And... Over and over and over again, taking long road trips just to listen to the record. When did you realize, oh, we're doing something different here? Well, we knew it was different,
1: but that didn't make it good. Did you know
0: it was great right no, away? No, I
1: mean, we, we knew we—I knew I liked it. We knew we liked it. I mean, we were happy with it. We were very satisfied with what we'd done. But we figured, you know, who's going to want uh, an album where nine songs are about mortality? You know, and uh, we just figured that that wasn't going to really fly. And we were always prepared. Every record we put out, we were prepared for it to be rejected by the public because you have first of all, you should be. And second of all, you know we we were there to satisfy ourselves musically and and that doesn't mean that anybody has to come along with us. Every record we made was like, okay, here's what we're doing. Hope you like it. If you don't, we understand. And we really thought that a lot of people would reject the the nature of that one, but it's just such a well done thing. they didn't.
0: Yeah, well, when like so I read the story the other day about night swimming uh, from some like two thousand and five interview you did about it. Um, I somehow I, I'd missed it until recently. That that was one where Michael had the lyric ahead of time.
1: See, that's that's not the way
0: I remember. I think it. you said it. No, I don't. All right, think. so I because I had always thought that was a piece of music. The way that the story that I read was that. Uh, well, it doesn't matter no, what I, I read. No, but,
1: but you're right. I've been reading that people are quoting me in these articles, just saying that. Uh, yes, Michael had the lyric, and Peter and, uh, and I had a competition yeah. to see who could write. I just I don't read remember this it. Thing. I don't remember it that way at How all. How do you remember it? Let's set um, the record, the night swimming record straight. I remember just sitting, I, and I'm try, I've been trying to remember where I wrote that song, and I can't do it to save my life. I know where I wrote "Tongue," I know where I wrote "Electrolyte," I cannot remember where I wrote "Night Swimming," but to the best of my recollection, we hadn't discussed it. Michael didn't have lyrics for it. I just, I just wrote it and played it, and Michael heard it. And said, "I like that. Keep playing it." It was a similar thing to me and Honey, and and uh, so it, and again. And just then let that me became
0: and, the song "Night Swimming."
1: That became Night Swimming. It was not written with lyrics beforehand.
0: Can you hear? I love knowing that. That is what well, I always pictured.
1: I kind of want to ask Michael now because I could be wrong. Well, but, I got to get Michael on the that's, podcast. That's my memory, you got to tell I
0: mean. Michael to do the podcast, and then I can ask him the question. But when you make something like Night Swimming. Can you hear it? I was thinking about two songs, um, You Are the Everything and Night Swimming. Did you write You Are the Everything or did Peter write that one? Uh, that's Peter, yeah. So Okay, good. Can you hear when – th- that's good for the purposes of the question because uh, I imagine then that you can hear You Are the Everything closer to the way that I can hear. I hear it with some obje- – like mm. you recognize what's um, magical about it mm-hmm. probably. hmm but well, I feel the same way about Night Swimming. Can you? That's what I was oh, going to ask. Can you hear Night Swimming? Do you understand? Oh, that's a really beautiful, oh, special thing. I mean,
1: I really, when I was playing it, I used to sit down and just play it because that's why it doesn't do anything except the same thing over and over again because it's so complete. And I said, well, this is, I knew it was great. I loved it. I just didn't think it was a song. I thought it was just a fun little musical thing. And until Michael wrote lyrics to it, it wasn't a song. It was just a little musical round. That, went that you like there. to
0: play. Yeah. Do you remember where you were when you came up with it? Can't do it. Cannot. Yeah, I so mean, you know where you were when you wrote I've got to be hypnotized and remember where I wrote that because it's driving me nuts. But suddenly you were just carrying it around. Essentially, suddenly you had it yep. and you were carrying it around, yep. and it was in your head, and you knew this is really pretty. When you write m- melodies like that, music like that, uh, do you chase it over a long period of time, or does it happen quickly usually? Both. Some things I know uh,
1: are good, and I know are worth pursuing. Uh, I think I think Night Swimming probably came out
0: in about as long as it took me to play it. It just happened. It just happened. And you knew, oh, this is... I don't know if it's a song, but it's like, this is beautiful. I knew I liked it, yeah. And then when Michael wrote those lyrics, and you actually heard him do that thing, did it move you? It's Absolutely. Like, you, oh, so you would allow yourself to be moved by the stuff oh, yeah. your bandmates and were doing well
1: because well of course I mean that's the idea. I mean I, you want to be excited about what your fellow bandmates bring to the to the table. you know I loved writing a, a song and then having Peter put his inimitable guitar style on it, it would make me so happy. Uh, you know I, I'd write this, this thing that I enjoyed this chord progression and then I'd just wait to see what Michael did with it and when he did something really brilliant with it, it made me really happy that I'd provided something that
0: inspired him enough to to use his talent on it and then did the thing just change somehow between the three of you after bill left is and and did some of that magical thing just kind of die is that is that why you know you're, you're all so um definitive about not playing together uh, anymore I mean I know you and Peter of J jam- you know what I mean you all also definitive about not doing it did did the magic somehow get leached out of it or did Or is it just a a rational kind of a decision?
1: It was, you know, uh, Michael's description was always the best. Does a three-legged dog know how to run? Yes, eventually it does. It's just a three-legged dog instead of a four. Um, Obviously, REM was not the same band. I mean, we always said that if any one of us left, we would break up. Bill said, I want to quit the band, but I'm not going to unless you guys promise to keep playing so we honored his request and we figured we could still you know we had some good songs written for up and we figured we would continue on and see what happened was it the same no of course not it's never it was never going to be the same but that doesn't mean we should abandon our love and and what we do and 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 just not do this anymore just because uh, one person has decided not to do it with us right so we I mean yes it was very different but we're also very very happy that we
0: kept on because we made some really great music and and in your mind like what is it that made it eventually not worth doing anymore well
1: it was a a combination of of things um... our record contract was up the music business was turning into something completely unrecognizable uh... we had all we all said what else can we possibly do that we haven't done do we want to sign another record contract do we want to put these things out ourselves and figure out how to do that you know, why do we, why would we want to do this? And we all realize, you know what, there's really nothing else we can accomplish. Let's, we're all young enough to go out and have fun doing other things. Let's shake hands, be friends, walk away, and do something nobody's ever done, which is to walk away as friends at maybe not your creative peak, but certainly close to it, and be the band that doesn't get back together. I mean, all these things are things that that I'm proud of, and, and that we did, and it took, you know, it took, some, I don't know if it's courage is the word, but it took some will to do that. Of
0: course. And
1: uh, I'm pretty happy and proud of us for doing do, it. Do you miss playing with those guys ever? You know, not really. I went to see a, <laughs> I went to see a U2 show last summer in Chicago. Yes. And for the first couple of songs, I was like, oh, man, I could be doing that. You know, that's it's really cool. And then by about the third song, I was thinking, you know what? They'll be doing this tomorrow. And, and that you don't want to, that. to do. And then they'll be doing it about eight months from now. And I was like, you know what? I just don't want to do that.
0: Right. And when you write a piece of music, you don't think to yourself, well, I want to show that to Peter?
1: <laughs> no. Honest to God, it's, it's it, when we all sat in the room and said, you know, I think we should break up, we all agreed. I mean, it, it felt like the right thing to do.
0: What do you, what do you think most fans get and people get, get wrong about how it worked among the four of you?
1: Oh man. Uh you know, I think a lot of people missed how much silliness there was. I mean, how much we made each oh, other laugh, you know? And we did. We laughed all the time. And uh you know, I mean, we were to be in a band, you know, it's like your own little army. It's it's your you're a gang. And we were a gang. And that's, you know, that sort of camaraderie doesn't come in many forms in this world. It's true. Especially without having to carry guns and shoot people. So uh, you know we're we're just all so
0: grateful and lucky to have had that lastly just tell me what's really super fucked up about this or, my official order of uh, r and <laughs> <A. M>. albums
1: <laughs> I've been avoiding reading that alright go ahead
0: oh uh, it is just my order I understand it is official are we going from so you know, worst, worst to best, best or best, best to worst best, best to I mean not worst but best to least best <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, nice. uh automatic this is my order okay. automatic uh-huh. murmur yeah reckoning switch. pageant out of time document chronic town live at Olympia curveball there uh, I think live at Olympia is incredible fables green dead letter office accelerate around the sun monster new adventures up reveal collapse into now um well obviously
1: you know you got to remember that so much of these the impact of these early records was because people were listening to us at the most formative times in their lives. They were growing with us. You're
0: talking about the first 4.
1: Uh, first 5 even, but you know, people were in college, they were they were becoming whoever it was they were going to become and and we were the soundtrack to that. And nothing will ever be as important musically as what you're listening to as you're getting laid for the first time or the second time and becoming you know, realizing what it is to drink too much, and all these things that you learn, uh, the music that you're listening to while you do that will always be the most important music to you. Um, so we overvalue, you think I overvalue no, those I didn't albums. say that. Yeah. I didn't say that. I just say that, that, that they get a certain extra credit. I think Reveal is incredibly underrated. Uh, I would put Reveal much higher than that. I don't, New Adventures is about right. I don't love that as much as most people do. Um, Around the Sun, I would put lower because... It's got great songs on it, but we lost focus when we were making that record. You should, you can't take a break and tour in the middle of making a record, and then try to come back and finish it. That was a mistake.
0: Yeah, there are some great songs on there, though.
1: Um, agreed, agreed. And if you listen to, here's a record that. Uh, did you have? You don't have the Dublin live record on here. I do. Wait, that, no, not, that's not, the live, not live at Olympia. We made a live record. Oh yeah, that, that's in, one of
0: my favorite albums. Isn't that called the Olympia Club? No, no, no. No, of the, the two of the, go ahead you tell me you know it's uh, your no, band I, maybe
1: I don't I mean there's 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 live there's live at the Olympia but there's another live record done on the Around the Sun tour ah uh, yes no that, right and I don't if, know that one if, it's, if you listen to that those songs on Around the Sun are great and you go holy crap the Boy in the Well is a great song she just wants to be those are really good songs and oh, am I thinking about the right record Boy in the well, for sure. And anyway, they're and they they have a they take a life on when you play them live that they don't have on the record, and uh, it's a very overlooked record. It's just got a big picture of Michael's head on it. It's all red and it's Michael's face with the. I makeup definitely
0: have on. it. I mean, I have listened yeah. to every live record and every bootleg. I just live at the Olympia because you play. You know, it's your whole... Oh, I, no, that's, I love that record. Catalog. Don't get me wrong. That's a, that's a great record. But I'm going to go back and revisit Reveal. I'm glad that you agree that New Adventures isn't... That's the one I get the most shit for online. Uh, that's is not my favorite. That,
1: um, and, and the thing is about Reveal, it's too long. Some of the songs are too long, and it probably has one too many songs on it. But I think some of that stuff, if you listen, you know, it's a summer falling into fall record, and it, it's. I think it's gorgeous.
0: You, just, you said something so smart and a great place to end on about Automatic and why I know that putting automatic first uh, and why if someone doesn't know automatic for the people they should go get the 25th anniversary edition which has like 20 uh, demos and rare b-sides and songs that they didn't release you guys didn't release but automatic for the people which is my favorite REM album and the best one I think you know I wasn't that young kid uh, anymore true and the music still for whatever reason Mm The, the sheer, the fact that you guys actually uh, made the mournful album and allowed yourselves to make an album that was contemplating mortality, as I was getting married, and and guys, not just me, men and women like me, were moving on to this other stage in our lives, and in a very unsettled time in our country, and you put this. Although now it seems like completely settled compared compared to what we're living, but you made this record and trusted us to get it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and the fact that it's still so special to you know everyone who loves your band uh, will rate that album in the top three of their of, of the albums, mm-hmm. is a real I think testament to, to to what the record is because it doesn't come with any of that extra stuff. Uh, I wasn't um, you know getting drunk for the first time or meeting. The, my the first batch of new friends or you know dealing with uh, independence that's true and and so it's a, it's amazing it's a mature work well it's it's a special record I mean it,
1: everything lined up for that record I, I think it's you know there's not I don't think there's anything less than a really great recording on there and, right and if from start to finish it's it's clearly our strongest record in my mind and yes that one doesn't require Uh, coming of age to really appreciate it that one stands alone as do maybe a few others but but that one in particular stands alone and and uh, it's it we were sort of right place right time zeitgeist whatever you want to call it it was all working on that record
0: it was Mike Mills thank you so much uh, for being here on the podcast Mike Mills is on Twitter at (laughs) M Mills M what is it M M underscore Millsy (laughs) we will we interact on there Uh, Fairly often. Uh, I am at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can uh, email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Don't worry. Come on aboard. I promise you won't break the horse. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.